What's up everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got an exciting show for everybody today. We're going to be talking about two different companies, one that I think is a great long idea and one that I think is a great short idea. The long idea is a company called Curious Inc. and I've talked about them before. They've got a molecule targeting a specific protein that has shown some benefits in AML. So we'll get into that. And then I want to follow up by talking about a company called Longevron, which has seen a lot of excitement in the news lately, and it has moved up quite a bit. And I want to dive into their data a little bit more to explain why I don't think they have much going on right now. But before we do that, I do want to thank everybody. I appreciate all the support. So please continue to comment on the videos and click the like and share it with a friend. It does continue to help the numbers and that will help me to get great guests on the show. So with that, let's get right into it. And the first company I want to talk about is Curis Inc. Ticker symbol CRIS. And they're trading now at a price of $4.49 a share, giving them a market cap of $411 million. And this is down from their recent peak of $14 per share in mid-2021, where they had a market cap of over a billion dollars. So the stock has been totally hammered lately, along with most of biotech. But for this company, their Q3 net loss was $11 million. And they have current net assets at $130 million, giving them an enterprise value of $280 million. And what this company is doing, they're in the sphere of targeted oncology, where they're trying to specifically inhibit a molecule in a pathway that is hopefully going to lead to better cancer outcomes. And their major asset is a molecule that can inhibit a protein called IRAC4. And they're looking at an indication for AML or MDS, which is a hematologic malignancy. They also have a compound that's targeting this other protein called Vista. And it makes up a smaller part of their excitement, I would say, because Vista has previously not shown success because of the safety issues surrounding it. So I'm mostly excited about their IRAC4 inhibitor, and this molecule is called CA4948. And so the theory behind this is that spliceosome mutations can drive overexpression of this long form of IRAC4. And what happens when there's an overexpression of long form of IRAC4 is that it leads to constitutive activation of the NF-kappa-B pathway. And this plays a role in cancer and overproliferation of cells. So that's the theory behind it. And then if this is true, then if we can target IRAC4 and inhibit it, we can seemingly help out with cancers that are primarily driven by the long form of IRAC4. And so this molecule has previously been attempted by many other companies in oncology, but it has not been met with success. And somehow Curious has been able to do it with CA4948. So that's the reason why there's so much excitement here. And I'm going to talk more about my reasons on why I think there's so much potential. To talk a little bit about specifically AML and MDS, the reason why I think people are excited about Curious and why I'm excited is that they share this in their corporate presentation where in the population of patients, IRAC4, the long form, contributes to a big portion of patients' disease driver. So more than 50% of patient population has IRAC4L as being a primary driver. 
and this compares to already approved treatments like FLT3 and IDH2 is also there's some molecules that are approved there where molecules can improve cancer outcomes when those proteins are inhibited. So IRAC4 is doubling the patient population of FLT3 and I think for that reason we should be excited if there's going to be success here. And I put on the right hand side of the screen the approved therapies for FLT3 already. One is called Rydapt, another one is called Zospata. And the revenue that these compounds are getting so far for Rydapt, it's around $300 million as of 2020. And they're projected to do $1 billion. And then for Estellas Pharma, for Zospata, they're generating around $217 million per year. So we think that IRAC4 has a patient population that's about double that, and they see success there, then we might be able to double that peak. $2 billion drug at its peak if we're going off of the RIDAP projections. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot here given that Curis is trading at a $400 million market cap today. So let's get into the data. And they're doing right now a phase 1-2 for CA4948 in heavily pre-treated AML and MDS. And this is data that we've seen before. We haven't actually gotten an update from Curis in quite a while. And I think that's why a lot of weight is going to be placed on this January 2022 update coming pretty soon. And I'll talk about how the dates have changed in the last little while, but I first want to touch on the data. So this is a subset of patients that have either a spliceosome mutation or an FLT3 mutation. And what they've seen here in these heavily pre-treated patients is that they respond very well. So before treatment, their baseline percent of meroblasts is well above 5%, then when they're treated with CA4948, they're able to bring those down to normal range of below 5%. So very exciting, very positive result. Three out of four of these are considered a marrow complete response or incomplete uh, complete response. There's a lot of different terms to refer to how patients are progressing through therapy, and it's kind of convoluted, but I think for our purposes, three out of four of them are basically in the realm of complete responders, which bodes very well for specifically patients that have a spliceosome mutation or an FLT3 mutation. Now, only having four patients in here is not enough to show to the FDA that they should get accelerated approval for this indication in this subset of patients. So the company needs to recruit more patients here before they can approach the FDA. And this was my understanding. I listened to the last few earnings call question and answer periods, and this seems to be the hang up right now. And I'll talk about this in a little bit, but this result on its face, very exciting, very positive for the company so far, but they need more patients before they can start conversations with the FDA in order to figure out the path forward for approval in this area. Now, not only has CA4948 shown some efficacy in the target population, those with a spliceosome mutation or FLT3, but they also treated patients that don't have those mutations but also have AML or MDS. And what we're seeing here is that nine out of 11 evaluable patients without that mutation are able to achieve some kind of tumor reduction. Now, is it enough to call it a partial response or a complete response? Here, only one patient had a complete response, but there were like eight that had a stable disease. And what this tells me is there's potential for those patients either to go towards partial response 
or to sink back into progressive disease. So it could go either way. And I think here there is a lot of uncertainty as we move into the January 2022 update, because if, and it seems like they have some activity here, but if they can continue to show some activity in a non-target mutation patient population, the potential for CA4948 gets even bigger than just that 50% patient population that is driven by a spliceosome mutation or FLT3. So there is potential beyond what the market I think is assessing today. And this is where a lot of the upside could come from. Now it's tough to know, obviously it is a surprising result that they get any activity in a non-target AML population given the nature of the disease. But seeing a complete responder here of all these different patients, I think bodes very well. So I think the risk is worth taking a position because of this as well. And all of this is kind of forming my thesis on why I think it makes sense for us to be long going into 2022 for this company. For CA4948, the compound has monotherapy activity. And if the Trillium acquisition has told us anything, it's that monotherapy activity matters a lot to big pharma, it matters to the FDA, and I think it makes it super easy for evaluators or regulators to look at the data and say, okay, this thing has activity on its own without needing a combination. The other thing about CA4948 is that it would be first in class. And this is very exciting too. This I think bodes very well for the company and the molecule because no other pharmas or biotechs have been able to come up with a compound that didn't have safety issues with it as well as one that has efficacy, which Curious has done so far. And there were some issues that were brought up around CA4948 at higher dosing, but the data that I've shown so far seems to be in the 300 milligram dose range, which is gonna be the recommended phase two dose, is my understanding. So for those reasons, I don't think we need to be worried about safety. So I put then that it's a validated target, and I mean validated in the sense that, you know, pharma companies have tried and failed to generate a compound in this area, but it's clearly of interest. So I think that a buyout is actually something that we could look forward to legitimately with Curious. And I know people say that all the time, but these points that I'm making, I think bear that out. And then I think the last point here is that it shows efficacy in both patients that have the target mutation, either spliceosome mutation or FLT3, as well as a non-IRAC-L4, IRAC-4-L population. And so I think that the potential market could be even greater, but the company is gonna be focusing on this spliceosome mutation or FLT3. And I think getting it approved in that way uh, also is super exciting because once they can get it to the market, they can then add on indications, which seems to be an easier way of going about it. So I wanna to touch on this chart that we saw from Trillium and their R&D day in, I think it was Q1 of 2021. And they showed all of these oncology drugs and of the top 10 or top 20, all of them have monotherapy activity. And I think that this is a very telling story because Trillium was then acquired by Pfizer in the latter half of 2021. So I think that the CEO is absolutely justified in saying that monotherapy activity matters. And for this reason as well, I think Curious's drug has that potential. So, what are the next steps for Curious? So in their follow-on studies, they're gonna be looking at monotherapies of spliceosome mutation patients, of FLT3 mutation patients, and I think the reason for this is 
once they have that data, they'll be able to approach the FDA for approval. That's what I'm thinking. That's my hypothesis. They're then looking at combination therapies of CA4948 with azacitidine as well as with venetoclax because if they can you know, continue to see even more efficacy in this way, it'll be easy for them to get those add-on approvals. But the monotherapy in this target population is going to make it quicker for them to get that accelerated approval. Now, they say that they have a plan to discuss rapid approval with the FDA in 2022. And they're saying they're considering H1 of 2022 to request a meeting for FDA. So the meeting might not actually come until the second half of 2022. I'll talk about this in a second. First, what I want to mention is that the company originally slated the second half of this year, 2021, for more updates in AML, MDS, as well as non-Hodgkin lymphoma and Vista, but they pushed all of these updates to January of 2022. I don't think this is a big deal. They're pushing by like one quarter, which is pretty common in the biotech space, but I don't think this necessarily means there's anything we need to worry about. Now they say that this will not be the full data set. So I think this contributed to some of the downside action in Curious because we wanna see complete data so they can move into a pivotal trial to then eventually get approval. But what they shared with us is that it won't be the full data set. And the reason for this is that they don't have enough spliceosome mutation or FLT3 mutation patients for them to present that to the FDA to start talking about what the path forward is. What they have shared with us is that they're going to triple the patient number of the spliceosome mutation and FLT3 mutation patients. So they had four before, and it looks like they're gonna have nine to 12 for this target population. And what they think is that once those patients have completed the dosing or the treatment, they will then have a package that's ready to go to the FDA and say, hey, what's it gonna to take to get this approved? What's the regulatory path look like? So because it's gonna take these additional patients up to probably the middle of 2022, they're not gonna have that conversation with the FDA until the back half of 2022, and then look at how the regulatory path looks like. So I think this is pretty reasonable, and I think the company's being forthright when they're discussing this. It's just everybody wants the data now, they want the approval now. But I think that the company, where it's sitting at the $400 million market cap, this is a trough, and I think that as we get through 2022, it's definitely going to appreciate in value once we start to get more information here. Now, when it comes to the non-Hodgkin lymphoma data, they have not done an update since the November 23rd cutoff date. And I think that this is something to note. Usually you would expect that if the company's excited, within six months to a year, they will provide an update, but we haven't seen that here. And the rhetoric around the non-Hodgkin lymphoma data has moved from a monotherapy to an abrutinib combination. What we saw before was monotherapy data, but now the language in the corporate presentations is focusing on the abrutinib combination. And I'm not sure what to make of that. It seems like maybe the monotherapy data isn't as impressive as the monotherapy data is for AML and MDS but they're focusing on the abrutinib combination and they're saying they're gonna show some in initial data at the January 2022 date. So we'll see what it means. I think that the AML MDS focus alone uh, justifies my hypothesis with the company and a benefit in non-Hodgkin lymphoma would be good. 
but I don't think it's necessary for us to see those outsized gains. When I listened to the Q2 2021 earnings call, they explained that their focus had been on AML and MDS in 2021, and it's for that reason that they didn't really provide an update. I think that might just be job owning and there might not be much truth to that, but like I said, I don't think it's something that should preclude our thesis, um, but it does make me wonder how the data is coming along with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, the last thing I wanna mention is with their Vista molecule. I think it's called CA8993. So this is targeting a compound called Vista. I won't get into the details of what they're doing, but Janssen originally had this drug and they stopped the trial early before they could get to therapeutic doses because of unmanageable CRS. This is something like 10 years ago before a lot of the CAR-T therapies came out where CRS has now been better managed. And so what Curis has done, they've licensed the drug from Janssen and they've submitted an IND with a CRS management plan. So the FDA has approved this so that Curis can now treat patients with the drug in hopes of seeing some improvements in solid tumors. So I love that they're going into solid tumors, but as we've seen with any company moving an asset from nothing into directly solid tumors, the odds are pretty low that they're gonna see a positive effect. Not only that though, we know that there's safety issues with the drug. They're likely to have CRS problems. So I think that the safety signals that we see are probably not gonna be very positive. So it's for this reason that Vista is a very, very high risk asset and the likelihood of positive readout is pretty low. Like I said, I think the AML MDS indication alone justifies a long position in the company. That's what I'm taking. This is not investment advice, but this is what I think is gonna happen. And then the benefits of anything related to Vista are all upside. And I think that that helps out with the thesis, but it's not the core of it. So I wanted to compare Curis to other companies that have molecules in the IRAC4 space. Curis is definitely the furthest along, specifically in oncology indications, but there are a bunch of other companies that are developing IRAC4 inhibitors. I think the main one to watch for is Chimera, who has a collaboration with Sanofi for their IRAC4 degrader. The Protax space has a lot of excitement surrounding it, if you remember my interview with the Arvinus CEO, and all these companies have a pretty generous valuation right now, considering where they're at in the pipeline. So Chimera has shown some preclinical data for their IRAC4 degrader, and it looks good so far, but they haven't quite gotten to the clinic yet, I believe. Maybe they've started, but they haven't shown us too much data yet. And they're sitting at an enterprise value of $2.5 billion. Now, they have other indications as well that they're seeking, but in terms of their competitiveness with Curis, they're definitely further behind. The company with the next highest valuation is TGTX sitting at $1.7 billion dollar enterprise value. And they recently got hammered on some news that came out from an advisory committee request from the FDA due to some confusion or at least clarification that the FDA wants in regards to an overall survival endpoint. Leaving all that aside, they had a molecule to inhibit IRAC4, but the last I heard was that that molecule or that asset was not gonna move forward for whatever reason. So they're not gonna be a problem in terms of competitiveness with Curis. And then the next company is called Riggle. And they have an IRAC1N4 inhibitor, but they're looking at autoimmune disease indications that wouldn't really compete with Curis. So Curis really seems to be focused on oncology. 
And there is potential for this molecule to work in an inflammatory environment. And we see here that Bayer's molecules in psoriasis or autoimmune disease and Pfizer is looking, I think, hydrodenditis. I think that's a type of inflammatory disease. So I think that big pharma interest, Bayer and Pfizer, Gilead, them looking in these indications bodes very well for Curis and also contributes to my hypothesis that Curis is on the table for a buyout. So that's my Curis hypothesis. I really like them. I think that they've been hammered so much lately that I'm really thinking about doubling down on my position. And I imagine this would be about a one to two year hold. And once the data matures and they get more conversations with the FDA, I think it's incumbent on a large pharma to buy them out and get aggressive in this space. So that's what I think about Curis. Love the company. And with that, I want to move on to Longevron. Ticker symbol is LGVN. They're trading at $20 a share, giving them a market cap of $384 million. And this is up from $3 a share only in November of this year, where their market cap was $58 million. So they've had a huge run up lately. Their Q3 net loss was $5 million, and their net current assets sit at $17 million, plus a $20 million private placement that took place only a few days ago. So this gives them an enterprise value of $350 million. So actually their enterprise value is almost $100 million more than Curis. Insanity. So what this company's doing is they're commercializing what they call medicinal signaling cells, which are isolated from healthy bone marrow donors, and they're trying to treat various diseases associated with aging. The big one, obviously, Alzheimer's disease, huge total addressable market. So if they see any positive data with Alzheimer's disease, that is licensed to have the stock go up tremendously. But as I'm going to share in the next few slides, I don't think there's a lot there. They're also looking at this broader indication called aging frailty. And this is kind of a convoluted disease because it really just refers to normal aging processes, things like weight loss, things like mobility, things like pulmonary function, all of these things that contribute to the aging process. But what Longevron is thinking about doing is getting this molecule to be approved for this indication, aging frailty. And they're using kind of simpler tests to evaluate that, the six minute walk test, which is a very easy way to see whether or not uh, patients get some kind of clinical benefit. And then the last indication that they're sharing updates with is called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which is a congenital disease, as I understand, and it requires a number of different surgeries to correct. And they're hoping that infusion of medicinal signaling cells, their Lomacell V product, that's the name of it, will help with outcomes associated with this. So they're noble goals, don't get me wrong about that, and I hope they succeed in the long term, but as we'll get through, I'm gonna share why I think there's not much there today. So before I get into Longevron in a more concrete way, I wanna talk broadly about cell therapy companies because it's a space where you get the whole gamut. You get from total scam companies all the way to validated companies that have an FDA-approved product. What I want us to think about when we go through this is does Longevron seem like a company that doesn't have much there, or do they seem like a legitimate company that is providing the full picture that will have a package to present to the FDA where they'll be taken seriously? And so I listed some examples of companies here, and please, nobody take this seriously, because any of these companies could turn it around and show positive data that will totally invalidate what I'm gonna say, and conversely, a lot of the validated companies 
could end up showing safety problems. And I have companies here that have done both. So Athersys, Lineage Cell, Bluebird, these companies have been hammered because of various different reasons. Bluebird had a ton of safety issues and issues with their commercialization. Athersys and Lineage Cell, it's a little more complicated, but it really has to do, in my opinion, with them not showing enough data to convince investors that they have a viable product yet. And that could absolutely change. But what I've seen is that there's not enough there. And if you compare this to something like CAR-T related companies or CAR-NK companies, I put AFMD, Fate, Allergene, Juno, and Kite. Juno and Kite have products that are approved by the FDA. They were acquired by larger pharma companies. AFMD and Fate, there are some questions around durability now, but these companies all have garnered you know, around a billion or larger valuation compared to Athersys, Lineage Cell. I think they're around the $3 million range and it's gonna be a struggle for them to get higher than that until they can really validate their platform. I put Allogene here, they've had some uh, FDA problems right now with their molecule. They're still getting over a billion dollar valuation though, um, but it's gonna take a while for them to get validated. So all of this is to say, does Longevron seem like a unvalidated company or more of a validated company? And so to get to what they're actually doing, they're looking at medicinal signaling cells. And I put that in kind of quotes because this used to be mesenchymal stem cells, but then the inventor recently came out, his name is Arnold Kaplan, and said that we need a name change. And the reason for this is that mesenchymal stem cells, stem cells, the whole space has been convoluted because there's not been very good definitions surrounding what a mesenchymal stem cell is or what this kind of stem cell is. So the literature is extremely convoluted. And traditionally what mesenchymal stem cells were is they were derived from bone marrow and the way you knew that they were an MSC is that they could differentiate to bone, to cartilage, or to adipose tissue in vitro. You could use specific differentiating factors and get these different types of cells from the progenitor cell, these mesenchymal stem cells. So in the differentiation uh, plot, they're not totally pluripotent, but they're not totally differentiated. There's something in the middle and their character is such that they can only differentiate into these three. Now in the last 30 years, it's extremely convoluted. Like I said, literature is all over the place. MSCs have not only been found in bone marrow, but in all sorts of different tissues, and they've been shown to differentiate into multiple cell types. Now, is that because they're not true mesenchymal stem cells in whatever paper that showed that? It's possible. So it's very confusing, and it's tough for us to know exactly what's in this MSC prep that's being given to different patients or what's being used in different experiments. So the other thing is that some treatments have been approved while so many others have been discredited and so many others have moved to offshore markets or ex-USA markets in order to treat patients to you know, overcome the regulatory hurdles that are associated with the US. So this is also very convoluted. We don't know what this means. Like, does the treatment actually work or is it a scam? So keeping all this in mind, it's tough for us to know whether or not MSCs do have an effect or not because of everything I just laid out. So Lineage Cell and Athersis, they seem to be using a similar type of product here where it's some kind of stem-like cell in order to get better outcomes. And I've seen data that seems to validate that MSCs have an effect and I've seen other data that shows that it doesn't. So we don't really know what's going on here. But when it comes to Loma Cell B, which is Longevron's product, 
They have taken donors that are age ranged 18 to 45. They say rigorously screened. They then isolate MSCs from a bone marrow aspirate. And then I pulled this top part where they select for CD105, which is an MSC marker, and they select against CD45, which is an immune cell marker. So using this, they're trying to come up with a pure MSC population, according to their definition. They're then able to expand these cells into the billions in culture, which is pretty standard. And then they treat the patients with a 40 minute infusion of different levels of cells. Now, when we look at their pipeline, it's more extensive than what I laid out before. They're looking at a variety of different diseases, but the ones that they've recently given us updates on is Alzheimer's disease, aging frailty, and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So I'm gonna focus on that, even though they have an upcoming readout, I think for biomarkers for aging frailty, as well as their flu vaccine and aging frailty. So I'm not gonna to touch too much on that, but I'll talk about these recent updates that they gave. And we're gonna to get to the bottom of whether or not there is something here to grab onto. So the Alzheimer's disease press release for their data came out on April 13th of 2021. And they said that the study meets the primary safety endpoint, positive secondary efficacy assessments, support potential benefit from Loma cell B. They then say that decline in cognitive function was slower in patients who received low dose Loma cell B as compared with placebo. So you'll notice here they focused on low dose Loma cell B. And the reason for this is that they did two different doses of cell infusions for these patients. The ratio is two to two to one for 100 million cells, 20 million cells, and then placebo. And then if you look at their corporate presentation, they show the MMSE readout, which is a pretty standard evaluation of cognition, as well as the ADAS-COG, which is a more in-depth one, but also a standard uh, evaluation of cognition in patients. And what they show here is that the MMSC and the Loma cell B treated group worsens less than the placebo group. And they show that they're getting a p-value of below 0.05, showing that it's statistically significant. They show the same for ADAS-COG, even though if you look at the error bars, it makes you wonder what's going on here. But You'll notice here that in the chart, they do not show the 100 million cell infusion, which makes us wonder, well, what's going on there? So the company totally ignored the 100 million dose infusion in the data. And I don't know how a company could do this with a straight face. This is such a dishonest way of presenting the data when clearly it shows that there's something going on here. So I don't know if you guys can see this, but I had to dig into the poster that was presented at AAIC 2021 to find what's going on with the 100 million cell dose infusion. And when you don't see it shown in general, it kind of means that the data is negative or there's something wrong with it. And that's why the company wants to omit it. So what we see here, and it's in the bottom, I'm just going to blow this up, is that the MMSC for the 100 million cell infusion of Loma cell B is no different from placebo. With the ADAS-COG, the same is true in general. It's a little bit better at the 13-week time point, but then at 26 weeks, it seems like it's no different than the placebo, which seems to also be true for the 20 million cell infusion. But the company is focusing now on the 20 million cell infusion because it seems like there's a little bit of a difference there. But in general, if there is no dose response, unless there's a compelling reason for it, and I can think of a few cases like 
certain activators of pathways, if you give a over excessive dose, you'll sometimes shorten the latency such that when you measure at the, your normal time point, it'll look like there's a decline in, in activation. But for something like this, measuring the MMSE, I don't think there's a conclusive reason, a legitimate reason why we would say the 20 million cell dose works, but the 100 million cell dose does not work. And for this reason, I think that this data is a total farce. I don't think that there's anything here. I think that this is just random chance that they saw an improvement in the 20 million cell dose and they did not see one in the 100 million cell dose. And for this reason, the data to date to me does not make it seem like there's anything here worth grasping onto for Alzheimer's disease. The other thing is that they've done this experiment before. If you look at their phase one trial, and I've got it here, Golpanion et al. in 2017, same kind of company, and you gotta dig through the website a little bit to find it, but in 2017, they did the same thing. And what they found was that when they infused 20 million cells, they got an improvement in MMSC of 0.5. If you can see on the scale, it's like a slight improvement. And this is at six month time point. For 100 million cells, they got a two point improvement. And then with 200 million cells, they got a zero point improvement. So again, we're seeing no improvement in the highest dose, which to me means that there's not really anything here. There's not really an effect on cognition when they infuse cells of Loma cell B. The next thing that we were made aware of has to do with the safety or biomarkers associated with Loma cell B infusion. And so they share here that subjects receiving Loma cell B has significantly increased serum levels of several provascular biomarkers. And they highlight VEGF, IL-4 and IL-6 relative to the placebo groups post-infusion. Now in general, I think there's a bias towards thinking that more vascularization is better, but as we know from all sorts of wet AMD indications, more vascularization doesn't necessarily mean better. You can imagine that if cognition is being affected, perhaps more vascularization in the brain could be a good thing, so you could kind of make that leap, but I don't know if that's been totally validated. But I think what's hilarious is the next part that comes up. They say that there was a significant increase in D-dimer in the high-dose but not low-dose Loma cell B arm versus placebo. I can't believe that they didn't expand on this more because D-dimer, as we know, is a marker of blood clotting. Now, was it significantly increased to an extent that it was an emergency? The company didn't say. I assume it wasn't because they would probably have to report something if that was the case. But they're showing more D-dimer, which makes you think that there might be a clotting problem going on in these patients when they're being given Loma cell B. I think it's funny because this provascular biomarker result that they're getting is probably in response to an increased level in D-dimer because patients are getting some kind of clotting going on. So to overcome the clotting, what the body will do is express angiogenic factors that can promote blood vessel formation so that it can alleviate the blood clot that's being formed. So this is a, something that I think is a concern that we need to be mindful of moving forward when we're thinking about treating patients with Loma cell B. So I thought that was interesting. Company didn't comment much more on that. And then the last thing that I want to mention is that they say that there are no significant changes in the Loma cell B arms 
versus the change in placebo for any neuronal related biomarkers examined. So, you know, I think this also confirms that any effects we're seeing in the cognitive endpoints are just due to random chance because they're not even seeing anything different when it comes to the neuronal related biomarkers. So that's the Alzheimer's disease data. I think it's disingenuous to the company not to present the whole picture in their press release and just focus on the middle dose. And for these reasons, I don't think it's a viable candidate moving forward for Alzheimer's disease. So I think the largest potential market for the company, which would be Alzheimer's disease, I think the thesis there is not valid here. Now, let's talk about the aging frailty data, and I hope you guys can see this. But the company used this six-minute walk test to evaluate whether or not patients can get an improvement after they've received Loma Cell B. And they specifically looked at this day 180, six months. They say that after adjusting for multiple comparisons using the Hochberg method, 1988, the four Loma Cell B cohorts did not show statistically significant placebo-adjusted difference. The secondary analysis was to determine whether a dose-response relationship exists, and so they used another model approach, Bretz et al. 2003, and those resu results showed a clear statistically significant dose-response curve at day 180. So I think we can appreciate that they showed the original pre-specified statistical plan did not show a significant difference. So they're being honest with us there. But then what it seems like they did is they just tried a bunch of different statistical tests afterwards until they found one that gave them a p-value below 0.05, and then they just shoved it in the press release. So this isn't really a legitimate way of doing uh, science or statistics. But before we get into the data, I also took this from the press release that I think was interesting. So they say that the remainder of the efficacy endpoints, which included assessments of physical function, sexual function, fear and risk of falling, depression, cognition, frailty status, pulmonary function, and clinical outcomes were considered exploratory and Loma Cell B treated groups did not show significant differences versus placebo. This is an aging frailty patient population and you would expect them to be good candidates for potential improvements in cognition. And they're outright telling us here that cognition was not affected by the treatment of Loma cell, bleed, Loma cell B. They're also saying there's no difference in clinical outcomes. And if we know anything about the FDA, it's that they wanna see a clinical benefit of your therapy, unless you go through all of these additional hoops to show that your biomarker or your surrogate endpoint is a good surrogate endpoint for a clinical outcome. This highlights how the company is gonna have such trouble getting this therapy through the regulatory approvals before they can get any hope of treating this into actual patients on the market. So that set aside, let's look at the data for the six minute walk test. And so the primary endpoint time point was actually 180 days, but they also evaluated at 270 days. And at 270, it actually looks like there's some kind of benefit here. At the 200 million cell infusion, it seems like there's an increase of maybe around 60 meters, which there might be something there. At 180 days though, there is no statistical difference here. These changes, the stars that they show are with their reevaluation, but I assume that the FDA would have a problem with this given that there's just no legitimate reason on why they changed the statistical plan other than they showed no statistical difference in the first analysis. So leaving that aside, Maybe they can change the time point to be nine months and they might show a benefit there. But if we think about, you know, what is it about that extra three months that would give an effect of Loma Cell B, it doesn't really make sense to me. 
obviously there's some treatments that take a long time to have an effect, but I can't really see how this cell therapy needs nine months before they get an improvement in the six minute walk test. And the mechanism of action of mesenchymal stem cells has not been understood. So there could be something here that we just don't know. But if we look at the phase two trial that they did before, and again, they've done a lot of these studies before. And in this study, Tompkins et al. 2017, same product, same patient population for the most part, and they evaluated at 90 days and 180 days. And so we see here that the square is the placebo, oh, and then the baseline's the, just the line. 100 million cells is the circle, and the triangle is 200 million cells. And what we see here, again, similar to the Alzheimer's disease, is that the 100 million cells has a significant difference, whereas the 200 million cell infusion is actually worse than the placebo. So this is quite a bit different than the data they're presenting us in 2021, but I think this hammers home the point that there's just a lot of variability in here, and that once they get to a larger trial, any statistically significant difference is not gonna show up as positive. So for these reasons, I think that aging frailty data doesn't really have much to lean on. So the last piece of data I wanna focus on is this hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And I'm not gonna talk about this too much because there's a lot going on with the treatments associated with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And it seems like if any indication is gonna have a benefit here, it might be this one from the therapy. What they're showing is that at two to four year follow-up, which is what the, the line is at 100%, 100% of the patients that were given Lomacell B are heart transplant free. And this compares to 80% or below with patients that did not receive Lomacell B. And they're using other studies to do this. This isn't a dual arm trial, it's a single arm trial, but they're comparing to historical data that shows that by year two and four, about 80% are transplant free. So they're getting about a 20% improvement in the number of patients that need a heart transplant. So that could be something significant. Now, it is only a small end number. They're only looking at 10 patients, but even with 10 patients to have them all being transplant free, I think bodes pretty well so far, but it remains to be seen. Now, the one thing about shorting a company, and I would love to short Longevron because of this information that I've just shared, but the company has received a ton of attention in different chat rooms and pump and dump groups, we'll call them. And I'm saying this because the stock rallied from $3 all the way to $40 on just getting a rare pediatric disease designation from the FDA. Now, the way the press release was worded was that the drug was approved for X, which was this rare pediatric disease designation. But because of the wording of that press release, I think it got the momentum turning positive for the company and they started to see this big upside. And then it took some time before the stock sold back off. Once people realized that it wasn't approved for really anything meaningful, it's meaningful from a regulatory standpoint, they get some benefits, but it's not super difficult to get this rare disease designation. Now this happened again on like Thursday or Friday when they got orphan drug designation where the stock rallied from 18 to around 25 and then closed at around 20 on Friday. So this stock is on the radar of people who are willing to spend a lot of money to try and increase the price artificially. Now when we look at kind of the statistics around the stock, the float is 2.72 million shares and the short percent of float as of November 15th was 6.95. Now, a lot of these increases in stock price happened since then, 
So I'm not sure whether or not this has changed, but it's something to be worried about because we can get totally killed on putting a short position on a stock that has the attention of these pump and dump groups or has a very high short percent of float. And then as the shorts tend to cover, this squeezes the stock higher and this is what's known as a short squeeze. So you wanna be careful about that. And the other thing I'll mention about shorting stocks is that it's super risky because the peak of a stock is theoretically infinite. It can keep going as high as possible technically. Whereas the technical bottom of a stock is zero. When you short a stock, the losses are potentially infinite. But I think at the enterprise value the stock is getting today, I don't think that it can be maintained long-term. Now we wanna time our position outside a potential readout that could hurt us. And I think that they're releasing biomarkers from the aging frailty study still in Q4, probably in December of this year. And they're gonna be sharing data from the aging frailty influenza vaccine trial, which I don't know if there's anything to be too worried about there, but for me, I'm gonna be looking until 2022 to probably put on this position and we'll see how it goes. I'm gonna be very careful and it's gonna be a very small position because of the outsized risk that it's gonna have due to these pump and dump groups, so we'll see. But besides the initiations of these two phase two trials, I don't think the company has a lot coming up and I would be comfortable shorting into the Alzheimer's disease readout. Everything that I've shared today makes me think that they're not gonna see too much of a positive impact here. So in terms of upcoming catalysts from other companies that I'm looking at, this chart hasn't actually changed too much. So we're still waiting on Checkpoint, Curis, Madrigal, Carrier Farm, ClearSide, Biogen, as well as ALX Oncology. And these are gonna come in the next three months or so. Uh, the NCD decision is gonna be in January for Biogen. And then, like I mentioned, Curious is gonna have an update in January. Now we did hear that BioXL had their PDUFA date pushed until April, I believe. So the stock got crushed on that news and it's since recovered. And I think this is actually bullish because I think some charts been floating around Twitter that says that if a company's PDUFA gets delayed, the odds of it getting approval go up significantly. And the reason for this is the FDA is willing to have a discussion with the company and work through the issues in order to get approved. Whereas if they just got a CRL, then the odds of approval are not as high and it'll take much more effort. So I think long-term this bodes well for BTAI and I'm probably gonna add to my position at some point. But right now, biotech has been totally killed and I'm waiting till we see a bit of a turnaround in the market before I add to my positions. So to talk about the situation we're in with biotech, my portfolio is now down 20% year to date, and this is in good company compared to the XBI. ArcG getting totally killed, down negative 40% year to date so far. And this compares to the other indices that aren't doing as bad, but the whole market has been selling off lately, and it seems to be due to these Omicron worries as well as some comments by the Fed that makes it seem like inflation is not gonna be as transitory as they had originally told us. So all of that is contributing to this weakness in the risky assets, the equities. Now for me, I'm sitting on a decent cash position. I still have around 30% of cash and I'm gonna be looking to deploy that soon into some of these names that I think have an outsized possibility of gaining quite a bit once the market turns around. And so for me, I'm thinking that I'm gonna double down on my Curious position. I have around 5% of my portfolio in that, and I think I wanna take it up to 10. So we'll see about that. I'm still abiding my time because you know more downside could happen. 
I think the XPI closed on a low on Friday, which means that it's anyone's guess how much lower the XPI could go. I think I might also add to my ALXO position as well as BTAI. The rest I'm just gonna hold out and see what happens, but that's what I'm thinking in the short term and keep an eye on my Twitter for updates there. But yeah, that's the episode I have for you today. So let me know what you think. Am I off on Curious as a long position? Am I off on Longevron as a short position? Uh, please let me know in the comments or tweet at me at Matthew Lapoire. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But thanks again, everybody, for your support. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time.